0: Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Commonplace: Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. Juliana Sparr, my guest for this episode, is the author of eight books of poetry. Her scholarly book, Du Bois's Telegram, was published in 2018 and investigates how state interests have shaped US American literature. The book considers questions that have come up many times in many ways on such as, can writing be revolutionary? Is art autonomous, or is it necessarily affected and influenced by nations and nationalisms? Juliana Spar is editor, along with Claudia Rankin of American Women Poets in the 21st Century, Where Lyric Meets Language, and is currently professor of English at Mills College. I have been reading and loving Juliana's poems for a long time. Like many of the poems I love most, her poems are somewhat undefinable, or they redefine what poetry is and what language can do. Juliana's poems trouble the lines between lyric, language, criticism, confession, narration, description, and activism in ways that excite and inspire me. All her books are fabulous, but if you haven't read her before, I recommend starting with The Connection of Everyone with Lungs, When Then There Now, or Fuck You, Aloha, I Love You. For a list of Juliana's books and links to the people and texts we discuss in this episode, please visit commonpodcast.com. There, you can sign up to become a patron of the podcast Commonplace has no institutional support, receives no grants or fellowships, and no corporate sponsorship. If you appreciate the work we're doing on Commonplace, please consider becoming a patron. It's also extremely helpful to us if you write us a review on iTunes and recommend the podcast to friends and students on social media or IRL. For this episode, the Commonplace Book Club will distribute copies of This Connection of Everyone with Lungs, Fuck You, Aloha, I Love You, Everybody's Autonomy, Du Bois' Telegram, all by Juliana Spahr, An Army of Lovers by Juliana Spahr and David Buck, and Myung Kim's Commons. Many thanks to Wesleyan University Press, University of Alabama Press, Harvard University Press, City Lights, and the University of California Press for these fabulous books. I also want to briefly update you on Sound Machine, the audio project. As I write this, there's only one week left on the Kickstarter. I'm incredibly grateful to all of you who believed in this new experiment in sound and poetry or who believe in me enough to donate to the project or to get others to do so with your words, emails, and tweets of support. Thank you. If you want to participate or learn more about the project, go to soundmachineproject.com. The Kickstarter ends on January 17th. I've got to meet my goal because it's all or nothing. So check it out. Thank you, Sound Machine backers. Thank you, Commonplace patrons. Thank you to all of you who let us know in various ways that you appreciate Commonplace. Your support and enthusiasm mean the world to us. I met with Juliana Spar on December 14, 2018, the morning after I went to an event at the 92nd Street Y celebrating the release of Juliana's book, De Bois's Telegram. Juliana read from her new book, and then Claudia Rankin asked Juliana questions about the book. Juliana and I continued that conversation about whether literature can be autonomous, whether it can dismantle state control, whether writers, even writers who write in resistance to the state, are influenced by the state more than we have previously acknowledged. Juliana is anarchist in her politics and in her style of thinking and talking. She tends to eschew declarative statements in favor of a nuanced, collaborative, thinking-through-together style. You're not going to hear Juliana proclaim, blame, denounce, and decry. But make no mistake, Juliana is putting forward radical questions, often challenging liberal assumptions that I have taken for granted. She's exploring the relationship between cultural production and direct action, and questioning our ability to affect political and social change as writers. In a way, Juliana's book caused me to remember how little political power I have as a writer. But I'm grateful for this honest encounter, for the way she helps me interrogate, for example, whether creating diverse syllabi is actually making higher education a more diverse and inclusive place or why greater access to the means of production is not dismantling the whiteness of the publishing industry as much as one might expect. Here at Commonplace, we believe deeply in the power of art and the necessity of direct action, but we want to make sure these are not uncritical, unthinking beliefs. This is an important moment to think about how the state has influenced US American literature and whether literature has been or can be an effective method of political resistance. Juliana's poems, criticism, scholarship, and this conversation help me think more complexly and clearly about these topics. And Juliana is the first to concretely answer a question I've been asking directly and indirectly in almost every Commonplace episode about personal ethical guidelines for writing. I'm so glad to be able to share this conversation with you. I hope 2019 can be a year for all of us to be active, engaged, critical, creative, safe, and full of joy. Here's Juliana Spar. Okay. Hi, Juliana. Hi. It's very nice to see you bright and early in the morning. Yes, thank you for having me. It's so exciting. I saw you last night um, speaking with Claudia Rankin about your new book, Du Bois' Telegram. This was my last week of the semester, and I asked for feedback at the end of class, and some of the feedback I got about the program from my undergraduates was that they were frustrated that there was never kind of a foundational class that they have introduction to creative writing, which for some of them was mostly fiction. And then they're sort of thrown into these poetry classes and they don't, they feel that they don't know the vocabulary, they don't know the terminology, stuff like that. So I'm sort of in that mindset right now. And so I'm going to ask you just a few more foundational questions okay. than I normally do. The other piece of that that I actually want to mention before I just ask you some questions is that I've gotten a lot of uh, really beautiful response to the podcast that some people are listening to it who uh, can't afford to go and get an MFA or for whatever reason um, can't do that right now. And they're really using it as an MFA. So so for them as well, I mm-hmm. feel like that's a helpful, um, kind thing to do. So last night, um, somebody asked you to define language poetry. Maybe it was Claudia, I can't remember. I know that you have said that you are certainly influenced by language poetry and by language poets. And mostly I see you describe yourself as an experimental writer. So if we could just quickly talk about what it means to be influenced by language poetry and what it it might mean to call oneself an experimental writer. Um,
1: I mean, you know, at at its most basic level, language poetry is a form of writing that develops among a very small coterie of people that are mainly located in New York and in the Bay Area, um, more often in the East Bay than in San Francisco, starting in the 70s and kind of carrying through till today. Um, But I mean, of course, that that geographical thing doesn't entirely hold, um, but it was also a kind of aesthetic that was very much influenced by modernism, um, was more phrasal and fractured than narrative or lyric. When I went to graduate school, a number of language poets taught there. They had kind of like just started to kind of enter higher education Often through not through MFA programs, but through the kind of like back or front door of um, PhD programs. More often, I mean, so that's where I would kind of like locate that influence. It's like coming out of there, are people there that taught, literally taught me things, <laughs> and um, that felt important. But there's also like they themselves have been very insistent on a kind of generational, like you're a language. Um, you're a language poet. If you hung out with the language poets in the 1970s, and you know, I was in kindergarten, um, so I would never define myself as a language poet. And I mean, I don't even—I can't even decide if I would even use the word experimental at this point. But it's more like I don't even know what word to use. Finally, certainly, just as language poetry seems to be very much influenced by modernism, I mean, I also feel kind of—you know—there's a modernist lineage that I would, you know, feel myself in debt to. <laughs> Um, I have also feel very much in debt to a lot of kind of like anti-colonial poetries, um, both the poetries of the 50s that kind of like come out of decolonization movements. And, you know, also um, kind of this poetry that I was encountering a lot when I was in Hawaii also feels like almost as dramatic of a kind of shaping in some way.
0: Yeah, I have a similar relationship to uh people asking me if I'm a confessional poet. Well, I certainly wasn't, you know, friends with Sylvia Plath and mm-hmm. hanging out with Robert Lowell. And so from a, you know, generational perspective, I, I'm never gonna be a confessional poet in that sense. Um, but I certainly have a vexed relationship to the legacy or influence mm-hmm. of that movement, but even I'm not even sure I would call it a movement, and and just to like elaborate a tiny bit because it's it's important in under in it's or it's helpful in understanding your work, and it's also helpful in talking about um, your new scholarly book, which is this kind of um, I think very oversimplified binary between the lyric and language. Poetry, um, where the lyric is more considered, you know, coming from the uh, the eye, as if the eye didn't need to be examined, and mm-hmm. and all the all of these things, and something that was more sung or musical in certain ways, and language poetry being as you're saying, you know, more related to modernism in one particular way and more phrasal and fractured. And so when people read it, um, or hear it, it's not that it doesn't make sense, but it's certainly tends to be much less narrative or Mm -hmm. less clearly narrative. I wonder if we should like just have you quickly read something from one of your books so that we hear what your work sounds like. Mm -hmm. One of your poems. Do, Do you mind doing that? No. Okay.
1: I'll actually read this just because it's so, it is so lyricky. Uh (laughs) So so trying to think about like the tradition in some way. So it's a poem called January 20th, 2003. Um, Some say thronging cavalry, some say foot soldiers, others call a fleet. Some say an army of cavalry, others of infantry, others of ships, some say horsemen or footmen or rowers, or troop of horses, the serried ranks of marchers, a noble fleet, some say. Some say 120 Challenger 2 tanks or infantry or a fleet of ships. There are those who say a host of cavalry, M1A2 Abrams tanks, and other Bradley fighting vehicles. Some say others of infantry and others of ships and others of 155-millimeter howitzers. Some say thronging warrior combat vehicles. Some say foot soldiers. Others call a fleet the most beautiful of sights the dark earth offers. Some say the fairest thing upon the dark earth is a host of anti-armor AH-64 Apache attack helicopters and others, again, a fleet of ships. Some say that the most beautiful thing upon the black earth is an army of AS-90 self-propelled guns, others infantry, still others ships. On this dark earth, some say the thing most lovely is the 30,000 assault troops from Britain today. Joining the 62,000 from the U.S. mobilized in the past 10 days, and a further 60,000 from the U.S. on their way. On this black earth, over the coal black earth, some say all of this and more. But I say it's whatever you love best. I say it is the persons you love. I say it is those things, whatever they are, that one loves and desires. I say it's what one loves. It's what one loves. The most beautiful is whomever one loves. I say it is whatsoever a person loves. I say for me, it is my beloveds. For me, not else. It is my beloveds. It is the loveliest sight. I say the sight of the ones you love. I say it again, the sight of the ones you love and those you've met and those you haven't. I say it again and again, again and again. I try to keep saying to keep making it happen. I say it again, the sight of the ones you love, those you've
0: met and those you haven't. Gorgeous. I'm so glad you picked that. It's a it's an incredible example of what I love about your work and also the, the way that your work is undermining distinctions between these made-up categories. Um, and I think that your scholarly book, which I want to talk about now, is also trying to look at the ways in which we've set literature aside into categories in ways that have uh, made it more difficult for us to understand what's really happening or to notice um, the things that are important. And I was thinking maybe instead of starting with the argument of your book, we could start a tiny bit with the story that led you to um, investigate these things. So as I understand it, part of it was it came out of a real desire to look specifically at poetry that was being written in the 90s um, and a set of texts that were written in English but using languages other than English in the texts. And then uh, an overlapping interest, which has been, I think, with you for a long time, if not from the beginning of your writing career, to think about the relationship between um, poetry and action, poetry and resistance, poetry and the political, and to think more subtly and carefully about whether poetry uh, or literary production can be uh, an effective act of resistance, and to what extent it's also co-opted by and influenced by the state that it is trying to, in some way, resist, and that that led you to look at several other time periods and several other kinds of literature. Am I on the right mm-hmm. track? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is there something important that I'm that I'm leaving out or or um, missing? No. no. Because one of the questions that I wanted to ask you before we get to your argument within the book is you're someone who uh, is a practicing poet and very much a critic as well. And you're one of the few critics who writes about your peers and sometimes even people that you've collaborated with. Uh, like Jenna Osmond. And I was wondering about that. Like, So the idea that you entered into um, this book, because you wanted to write about the, the literature of the 90s, is really interesting to me. And some critics say like, oh, I can't write about my friends, or I can't write about anybody who's alive, or I can't write about, you know, but I think this seems to be essential in your work and of all of your work, the desire to kind of try to understand what's happening around you and how you're part of the system that you uh, are living in.
1: Yeah, I mean, that might be um, when you ask about the influence of language poetry in some way, in which I was kind of thinking about it more aesthetically. I mean, one of the major things that was really kind of influential about language poetry was that, I mean, they kind of created this alternate universe in some way where they were writing a lot on each other's work. Um, And that had this moment of kind of like getting, you know, bringing them into the academy, I think was kind of a large part of a result of that work. They were writing very scholarly, very serious work on each other and kind of explaining it and um, sometimes, you know, debating various things. I think that was part of it. I mean, it was certainly like one of the moments when I kind of started to think about this book was actually I mean directly when Charles Bernstein was kind of like you should write something on your peers like even said that and when I was in graduate school and I was like but what do I write about and it took me a few years to begin to think about like you know like what you know what was meaningful to me or what I was trying to think about in the 90s which was a lot of that kind of like multilingual work which I was trying to think about as a you know form of multiculturalism and what that meant and then kind of like you know that project just kept morphing as I kept kind of working on it in some form that writing on the very contemporary was supposedly part of what you were supposed to do coming out of that, SUNY Buffalo Poetics program. And that's kind of almost what you were trained to do. You know, I always have this kind of joke about how I read every single Leslie Scalapino book, but it's not really a joke because I literally did read every single Leslie Scalapino book and kind of had a lot of thoughts about them in graduate school, which I don't think was like a conventional understanding of what people often do in PhD programs.
0: So, okay. So I know we're skipping all over the place, but that's sort of the way my mind works anyway. So I don't, I am not going to apologize for that too much. But um, so when you were at SUNY Buffalo, you were working with Charles Bernstein, was what, did you work with Creeley? Was he there Uh then? And so Leslie Scalapino is a writer who's deeply, deeply important to me. Um, I have a really interesting relationship to her books where uh, I think I've read pretty much all of Mm -hmm. them. And there are a lot of them. They're like a portal for me. Like I read them and then I want to write. But I don't necessarily feel super comfortable teaching them, Um, which, you know, Who knows why that is? But Lynn Heginian would be another example of a language poet in that world at that time. So, okay, part of what was expected in that world and in that time that you would write about your peers, to come back to the books that you're talking about um, in the 90s that were multilingual, um, what might be an example of a few of them that were really interesting to you?
1: Um, I really love Mee Young Me Kim's The Commons, mm-hmm. you know. Um you know, so many finally. I kind of really love those James Thomas Stevens books that are have kind of really kind of complicated, you know, play with colonial and kind of indigenous languages. I'm trying to you know, like this it's just it's kind of this like there were so many of those works at that moment and they were all kind of, they were all kind of fascinating.
0: And this was before you had moved to Hawaii and lived in Hawaii. So it was in some ways like a precursor to what became very interesting to you about living in a multilingual, multicultural um, community. Okay, so you were looking at these books and then what happened? Like what led from from looking at those books was it because you were interested in the way in which um, those books seemed to be subverting the uh, primacy of the English language, but ultimately, of course, English was not in any way uh, broken down, or was it more the way those books were sort of handled and categorized?
1: I mean, it was kind of both. I mean, I was kind of interested in how so many different writers that might not be grouped together were kind of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in it also as a kind of revision of what was beginning to feel like a kind of easy, multicultural, representational politics um, or, you know, that might best be thought of almost as like a revision of kind of like the, the ideas in Gloria Ansel do work, right? That your language is your identity. And I felt like a lot of writers were trying to think about the ways that English wasn't their identity, but neither were this was this other language. And, you know, like there's a lot of like... Um, there might be many reasons to also not want to say that Spanish is your identity, the way that Anzaldua was doing, because it's another colonial language to the, you know, Americas in some way. And it's it felt like there was kind of people were trying to think that through in kind of interesting ways. And so that's kind of where I was trying to begin to think about those works in particular.
0: Claudia asked you a version of this question, but um, I want to ask it in a little bit of a different way you spoke about what you felt at the time was like a kind of pressure to stay in your lane or uh, to basically as a white woman who was writing poetry and thinking about poetry and writing about poetry, that you kind of had two choices or that it seemed like you had two choices. And one was to avoid appropriation, um, you know, because that was clearly not a great thing to do. And to do that, though, might basically be just to occupy an avoidant position in which you were uh, only writing about other white women, but that that do no harm sort of mentality was actually not harmless at all, but was not doing enough to look at uh, the way in which you and the writers you were writing about and the writers you were writing with were part of a system that was keeping people in their lanes, perhaps in ways that were uh, deepening and entrenching certain kinds of racist, colonial, imperialist, Powers, I guess. Um, And so to some extent, I read in that that the reason for writing this book in particular, but also doing many kinds of things to kind of get out of your lane um, was inspired by that realization that that to avoid doing one particular kind of mistake, um, which would be racial appropriation, is not actually the solution to anybody's problem.
1: Yeah, or trying to find a more nuanced way of kind of through it in some way that was kind, of, which would didn't end up um, kind of like the the way that I kind of thought about it maybe most helpfully in some way was around issues in Hawaii, and there was this big thing about like what would it mean to talk about Hawaiian issues in some way, like what what does that mean to talk about it? And you know, there was a kind of like argument at the time that like you shouldn't touch these Hawaii Hawaiian issues because. Um, to do that was to kind of um, indulge in that long tradition of colonialism in some way. And um, and then there was another position that was like, um, you know, we have an obligation to kind of like be anti-colonial in that moment, which would mean talking about, you know, the occupation of Hawaii by the United States. Um, and I kind of it kind of felt like those were two choices. And I was kind of like, well, I'm on this other the side that's kind of like you kind of have to deal with it. And I spent a lot of time there, like trying to come up with what I think of as somewhat arbitrary rules, but maybe arbitrary is not the the word, but personal in some way. And I was kind of like, well, what would I do and what would I not do? And I mean, I can't decide if they're completely idiosyncratic, but they were things like, I felt like I had an obligation to um, be pro-sovereignty in my work, but I had an obligation also not to say what form sovereignty should take. That that should be for you know decided by Hawaiians in some form, um, and you know the, you know it was a series of things like that, like I would have never said a novel I don't but I don't even write the novel, but if I had, I would never said a novel or a poem in pre-contact Hawaii. Um, I would never claim to understand Hawaiian spirituality. Um, it felt important also in my work to um, make it clear that I was not Hawaiian, that I came. On the side of um, you know the col- came with the colonial apparatus in some way, I mean very directly because I was uh, hired by the university there. I mean that was kind of like trying to figure out like what the limits are around that stuff was. I mean it's been kind of interesting watching like the debates and like recent moments around a lot of these issues. I don't you know I kind of have mixed feelings about a lot of them, and some of those debates have felt productive and some less so. And I still don't feel like we have a really great sense of. Um, the, there's something still that that discussion feels like it's lacking in nuance might be the way to put it off. And like, um, I'm not sure we've worked that out as a kind of like
0: literary culture in general. The debate about sort of what uh, a particular person can and can't, should and shouldn't write about mm-hmm. or whether whether writers should have guidelines, personal guidelines perhaps about what feel as ethical to them or not, like those that kind of things are like,
1: what do we think? I mean, obviously, we haven't worked it out because there's been these huge fights, which was one about that Anderson Carson Wee poem in The right. Nation, right? I mean, that seems like a, that was a big example about like, was it appropriate? Um, was it written in, you know, Black English? Was it not? You know, was, was it following the rules of Black English or was it not? And there, there wasn't. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth in that debate. That felt to me like an example of kind of like how it's somewhat not worked out yet or
0: something like that. Do you see anything positive around the debates in terms of people caring passionately about it? Or does it seem like – I feel both ways about it. Sometimes I feel like, well, at least people care, you know, um, at least people are noticing. And other times it feels more similarly to, uh, you know, a kind of particular moment of calling out a particular individual – um, on perhaps saying something racist, and the sort of self satisfaction that everybody feels when they are like that person is bad, but the ways in which it deflects from a conversation about institutional racism that's going to ultimately be less sort of sexy and satisfying, but more far reaching. Perhaps I feel both ways about it. Like it feels, it feels a little bit like just a, a distraction. Uh, and other times like, oh, we're, we're, we're actually getting somewhere and editors will be more thoughtful and poets will think about this and.
1: Yeah, it's probably both. And it probably has moments of both. And it would be like, it's sometimes it feels like it's one upmanship for certain moments. And then other moments, it feels like it's a kind of interesting, complicated conversation. I feel in general hesitant around it because I feel like there's a lot around, um, social media that hasn't been entirely we haven't worked out the boundaries of it yet or something or and i mean that more um psychically or psychologically in some sense um there's been a lot of uneven amplification would be the way to put it in this moment and then that it's kind of hard sometimes to figure out like what the uneven amplification of this of that means or something the people that you're not hearing from you know like what's going on there or something i don't i don't know i mean i'm kind of interested in it more than
0: Anything else? I mean, it doesn't feel like it helps to have a position on it because it's not going away. Um, you published a poem. Was it called "My White Feminism"? Mm-hmm. Um, and where it was in the Boston Review? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that got a lot of people yeah. got very excited about that. Um, what was that experience like for you? Did I remember that there were people who were offended by the poem, which was hard for me to fully understand because it seemed to be making fun of itself so Mm. clearly. I think it was perceived by some as a very risky thing to do or...
1: I mean, again, like that's the moment where it's kind of hard because there was like, it was hard to sort through it all. And it's even hard when it's your poem to sort through kind of what what the problem is. Some people, I think, read it as a defense of Jermaine Greer, which it was meant to be a complaint about Jermaine Greer. And it was... I mean I intended it to try to think through like what do we do with the second wave feminism that's been really influential and yet also is you know fucked up at moments and um you know like how do how do we think it through and kind of um and it was meant to also um like put the narrator quote unquote which I I mean I don't know whether I would say it's like necessarily me but a a white bourgeois woman of <laughs> middle age <laughs> and um to to kind of like put them as as small or as attempting to learn from, you know, kind of these these kind of emerging changes around gender that were really kind of felt really kind of wonderful. And, you know, that that I was learning a lot from other people that were engaging these in different ways. So I'm not sure entirely like I would I would I would be hard to summarize what the complaint was entirely Mm -hmm. in some form. The only thing that I kind of feel like, I, I actually don't read that poem anymore just because there are people clearly that were upset by it. And I've just been like, kind of like, it's a, if it has that risk of upsetting people, it's clearly not what I intended. I haven't even been like, oh, I should just rewrite it. I'm not even sure. Sh- I'm not sure kind of like what, what to do with those moments finally. I mean, it was it was kind of interesting in some form. I tried to stay out of it because it didn't feel like it was helpful for me to go in and be like, this is the right way to read the poem, which I, ever, I actually always feel is never helpful. It kind of feels like if if it's being read some way counter to what the
0: intentions of the author was, you probably have to think about that some Mm -hmm. in some way. It's interesting. The idea that you stopped reading it, which I have no criticism obviously about uh, because the risk of sort of upsetting people didn't seem worth it or it was, it was, you know, it wasn't where you were going to put your energy. Whereas other parts of your life, you are very uh, unconcerned with upsetting others or upsetting institutions. I guess. I mean, you uh, would you still consider yourself an anarchist, for example? Yeah, probably. Right. So, I I, th- I would think that many of the things that you believe in, and the you were very involved in the Occupy movement. You're not concerned, in some ways, with upsetting people, particularly. Or am I wrong? No.
1: No. I wish I was that person that you're
0: describing, <laughs> but I'm probably not.
1: But I mean, the thing about that poem and that felt like different than that is like it felt like it was upsetting people's individual, individually mm. about an identity category that they had precedent over, that I don't have precedence over. That's part of what that poem was about, but it wasn't coming across in that moment. Like people were feeling that it was kind of like directive in some way or something. So, that would be the moment where I probably just wouldn't I didn't feel like I needed to hold on to it.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in these rules or personal guidelines that you developed when you were in Hawaii. And I was wondering if you still have, or if you've developed a new set of of guidelines now that you're not in Hawaii. So like, what would those be now? Like, what are the things that you're not willing um, to write about? Or is there anything similar for you now?
1: Yeah, I mean, probably like variations on them. You know, I don't think I would write um, something, for instance, about BLM that did not have an obligation to present myself as a white writer. who was doing that. Um, like that would feel like one of the beginning, one of the ways that you would have to begin that if you were going to do that. Um, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to claim a kind of, um, I wouldn't want to dodge the 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 inevitable identity question around it. I mean, it would feel like it would need to be. Put out there in some sense, and you know, so those would be variations on that. You know, that those kinds of things. Where probably a lot of them would still hold for me. Like I don't, you know, I don't think I would ever try to write something in black English, for instance. Um, you know, in part because of the long bad tradition of white writers doing that. Um, that I just feel like comes like rushing in in the mm-hmm. moment, and it would. I mean, there probably is some way that someone could do a sophisticated, politicized um, engagement with that. I think it would it's probably above my skill grade.
0: Right. I mean, I think both of us are not super interested in developing a set of rules for all writers, Mm -hmm. but that I know I'm, you know, that doesn't stop me from being very interested in developing a set of guidelines for myself, even if those change over time, even if I violate them, at least kind of imagining, you know, like the first one you said, which was that, that you... Uh, when you were in Hawaii and, and, and writing there like that you were going to be pro sovereignty. Is there anything similar to that? Like, perhaps you are going to fundamentally be anti capitalist, for example? you know, like, you wanted to make it clear that you were not Hawaiian. And and now you're saying, like, if you were going to write about Black Lives Matter, if you were going to write about uh, multiculturalism, that you would for sure need to make clear that you are white, you know, or uh, that you wouldn't pretend to understand Hawaiian spirituality. That feels similar to me, to your idea that you you probably would never write in black English not the same but but Mm -hmm. overlapping and I was just wondering if there were sort of like ideological foundational principles that were similar to pro-sovereignty that you now feel are important to communicate uh in your writing
1: I mean maybe the nearest equivalent is is like I I keep trying to think about like what does it mean to not uphold an a nation or try to break down a nation as much as the idea of a nation as a natural, you know, formation in some way, as much as possible. Um, which I don't know, you know, know entirely, um, at moments kind of legible, but I'm, al- I'm always kind of like thinking about like, what does it mean to like put that nation thing in there? You know, what does it mean to like suggest that those boundaries are, you know, real or actual or
0: legitimate or something like that? I mean, that might be the nearest equivalent. So let's talk about the the book more specifically, because in beautiful ways, we keep coming back to it. I think it is of fundamental importance or of great importance um, to you um, in your writing of different kinds to examine the concept of nation and to think about whether writers, particular writers, and, and sort of the history of literary production is able to undermine and subvert ideas of nationhood and nationalism, or at the extent to which even writers who we think of as writers of resistance have been influenced by national organizations and interests? Would would you say that's kind of at the heart of the book?
1: Yeah, or that how the state, yeah, what the state's doing in literature, and yeah, in some way, like, what's it? what happens when it comes
0: in. Right. And there's all these fascinating examples uh, that I had no idea about uh, of the way in which the CIA was involved in funding other organizations that appeared to promote cultural diversity and freedom, but actually were at least partially invested in presenting an idea of the United States as less racially segregated than it actually was, or, or, you know, to have an underlying anti-communist agenda to say like, okay, here, uh, here, Europe, here are our free American writers who are allowed to do anything they want. Um, But that if you look at it more closely, it's an agenda that is serving the state. I'm very interested in that you know at the ways in which some of these institutions that writers really hold dear have perhaps some really complicated and not so great connections um, like I was wondering when everybody started freaking out um, and I was one of those people you know that the NEA was going to lose their funding I don't know I was wondering what how you felt about them I mean the NEA comes up for, along with, you know, uh, all these organizations?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the NEA is a good one because I've been trying to figure out what I feel about it and I'm not quite sure that I know. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing that I really like about the NEA, there's two things. One is that what's great about the NEA for literature, for writers in particular, is that, you know, it's anonymous and it's not that hard to apply for and doesn't require letters of recommendation. And it feels like a lottery when you like look at who who has won. Like it's not entirely a lottery, but it's pretty it feels somewhat, it's got people that are very established in it, but more often it's just got people that are right at the beginning. And that's kind of what's really interesting about it as a as a whole, as a, as a grant in some way. I mean I know that some of the experimental, more experimental I just feel constantly excluded from it. And there's a certain truth to that, but it's, you know, whatever, that's what it is. Kind of on the other side, the other thing that's kind of interested me is that when these moments when the NEA has been cut back – they've cut back the individual artist grants, right. And they've left the writers, which always feels to me slightly suspect about writing in some way that the state didn't find it um, threatening enough to get rid of it, but it clearly found it threatening enough to get rid of like the performance art part or something like that, which I don't really know. It's just kind of interesting around it. You know, the NEA is, you know, it's fairly recent. It hasn't been around that long. Um, It is in terms of arts funding and the, it is a, it's a large part of the United States' arts funding. I mean, it's 200 million about um, every year. Compared to other nations, it's very small amount, and a way more significant part of arts funding is coming out of these private foundations that are kind of allied with the government in various ways and that are created, created as, you know, tax aversion. There's a kind of constant complaint that we're underfunded, or artists are underfunded, and they're probably not. Um, although a lot of that, it's, I don't know whether anyone has any firm numbers on how much of this support is coming from foundations. Although, you know, like we know the major foundational support that's happening. I mean, I don't really, yeah, that's it. I just don't really know what to do with it. Um, other, other than kind of like have that observation that it's kind of out there and kind of interesting and, <laughs> and um, you know, doesn't feel particularly one thing or the other, mm-hmm. um, and is is actually also you know when you think about it it's a very small amount of money it's like it's next to nothing I'm sure it's very dramatic for the 30 people that get it a year but you know
0: yeah I mean I I completely uh, I found your book fascinating um, and important and it I definitely was like moved I saw myself in it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I saw myself as a person who. Has very much believed and espoused this view of um, of writing as a political activity. I'm not. In, you're not saying it's not. You're not saying it can't be. But you're pointing to some some you know really important things, such as yeah, like the government would like nothing more than for everybody to say, oh, you know what i I'm gonna I'm gonna act out by writing a poem because it's not going to bring down the government. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for sure, you know, I, in those moments in the book, I was like, yeah, I totally have been guilty of believing, not that I ever believed that writing should or could take the place of activism. Um, that mm-hmm. that I've never, you know, I, 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 belie- believe me, I know that uh, poems are not gonna, right, you yeah. know, burn down the White House. But I think that it's such a, it's such a like a, a, a passionate desire to believe that you are participating in a meaningful and kind of real form of resistance and protest um, the, and that writing and literature can do that. But I guess, you know, aside from from recognizing the limits of what uh, writing can do or at least what the limits of what writing has done Why is it important? Um, How does it help us? What kinds of actions might it suggest for us to look at the ways in which the funding and the influence of um, the state on literary production to look at that more clearly? How How can that change things for us?
1: I mean, I wanted to understand at the most literal level how my brain had been shaped by these networks, And I was kind of interested in like what had it, you know, what did I think was important or what what had I seen as resistant and revolutionary that seemed to actually be more closely aligned than I had realized. It was kind of like a scholarly, you know, desire to kind of understand that more than anything else. And then that question that sometimes gets asked as a result of that is like, well, what do you want writers to do? Should you not apply to the NEA? I don't really feel like I can have a, I don't really have a position on it and I'm you know, confused by it and don't really know. Um, I'm never someone that feels like you can have a purity politics. You can never get out of capitalism, right? As an, as an anti-capitalist, you have, still have to buy your sweater and um, you have to get your bottled water all the time as an environmentalist. like There's all these moments that the system doesn't let us get out of it, um, which doesn't mean that we want to just be like, well, there we are. You know, I, I think we still want to understand it um with the idea that maybe at some moment we could be in a moment of of actual change in some form but I don't have a like I didn't one thing I was really trying to be careful around was trying to not shame the writers or someone or be like let's throw out you know any endless number of writers as a result of these I just kind of wanted to understand what they were shaping about literary culture and also I wanted to understand somewhat about like why was the state interested like what when the state became interested in literature, what were they interested in or why were they interested in it? And um, what were they understanding? And maybe what were they also misunderstanding at the same time was kind of my, and you know, what I was trying to figure out.
0: Right, and there are some amazing... Examples of that that came up last night and that come up in your book, like, you know, the the government putting out these productions of Stein's work, you know, this question of what the state understands and doesn't understand. And 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 I mean, I guess to some extent, I also felt like reminded of how little power or how little afraid people in power are of me and what I do, to some extent. (laughs) That's, that's a Mm. weird way of saying it. Mm. Um, But your book helped me remember that, like, that the ways in which the state is involved in sort of either uh, actively or tacitly funding or pushing forward, or at least not messing with, is to some extent, a proof of um, how unconcerned they are with you. Yeah,
1: I mean, poets I th- I sometimes have this moment um, where they look at like the late 60s, early 70s moment when the FBI was actively ha- kind of harassing writers in various forms and kind of assume that that lineage has continued on and that the FBI is always there listening in in some way. But there doesn't seem to be any indication that they have any kind of, they're at all threatened by writing or have any kind of interest in it and kind of seem to recognize it as a very small <laughs> subculture of of limited importance. And in some ways, I think like I think if writers actually did become once again involved in militant organizations, um, not just in using militant rhetoric, but were showing up and if they were arming themselves <laughs> in the way they were in the late '60s, early '70s, I think that you know there probably would be an interest in it. But I think it would again be because of the militancy, not because of the literature. Um, finally.
0: But. Yeah, um you know C- Claudia was asking last night uh basically we have the internet, we have the ability to self-publish or to publish friends and so why isn't this moment different because it is seemingly more democratized. And um you know you responded in part that that it's true that um the means of literary production are more available to more people but and and that there has actually been um an increase in um the number in how much is published, but that um it's not uh the case that that what is published is more democratized um and that you know the that what is published is more and more. Uh, by white authors um, and kind of uh, a kind of more and more narrow type of literature. And it's not clear because, um, as you say, it's, it's it doesn't seem like the FBI is harassing individual authors. And so what is the force behind this narrowing or what is keeping um, this moment of greater democratization of the means of production from actually manifesting itself as a greater diversity of literary production? I mean, I think
1: several things are happening, but these are just guesses. One is a kind of question that is hard to figure out, which is like, why do certain demographics, let's say, Ivy League educated or elite educated, why are they more motivated to write literature? Um, especially because literature's often been, you know, one of the things we say about it is that, you know, we're we're very, we're interested in working class writer, you know what I mean? The proletariat writer is something that's kind of interesting in which there seems to be, I don't know, I mean, because there's a part, there's like these two, these various forces that have always often feel very complicated and kind of in flux at the same time. And And so that's one question is like, why why is the increase in production that's happened, which has been very, very dramatic, why has it not increased to a wider demographic, um, both in terms of race and in terms of class? Um, Why are white people more likely to self-publish? I don't know. (laughs) Um, And that has something to do with like, some identity categories seem to feel that literature has a greater relationship to them than others. And then the other thing that I think is actually happens is that one of the things that we tell ourselves is that literature is very, very diverse. And this is something that we tell ourselves in higher education. Um, And we teach it a very diverse syllabus. And we do this for for legitimate reasons, that we want to be racially inclusive, that literature is good, Um, that one of the things that we see literature doing is talking about race and inclusion and um, equity, and um, that suggests to us that literature is a good practice in some way, or a you know a nice form. Um, and we've created this narrative in which we've kind of picked certain works out, um, mainly from again writers that have gone through elite educational systems in various ways, and kind of suggested that there's this this kind of like U.S. literature that's that is very equitable when it's not. And as a result of that, have not put a lot of thought into what it would mean to create a more equitable U.S. literature, which would probably mean putting a lot more energy into things other than higher ed, or beginning to actually seek out works that were written by people not actually, that went through you know Ivy League education, or went through elite MFA programs, or would begin to think about what it, what it would mean to kind of like admit to MFA programs, a, you know, more diverse group of people in some way. Like, there's all these things that we've avoided thinking about, I think, as a result of this kind of um, well-intentioned desire to have um, this equitable syllabus or this kind of like, you know, this reading practice that presents a lot of viewpoints in some way. Like, we haven't been willing to kind of think about what are the biases in that, which is also hard work, right, to actually to actually democratize literary culture would require something major. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I don't know what, but so there are ways in which that is being attempted, like Cave Canem and Cantamundo mm-hmm. and Kundiman and these kind of non-degree granting, you know, organizations. Of course, it's not. It's never going to be in a vacuum. It's never going to be. Uh, but but that you know, ways of dismantling the university system or enlarging it or radically, you know, changing mm-hmm. it, um, which sort of brings me to to my next question, which is you and I uh, communicated via email about setting this up and then um, also came up that my son, who's a freshman at Yale, uh, was involved in this protest and which has been a very interesting thing for me to talk about with uh, the people in the various communities that I'm in. It sort of serves a little bit like a Rorschach test. If I say my son was arrested um, uh, and I explain the context in which he was arrested, the, the response of various people from, you know, uh, mirth, <laughs> condescending mirth, horror and concern <laughs> uh, and congratulations, uh-huh. you know, it's not that I'm shocked by who responds in which way, but it does reveal something to me um, about about my relationship with those people. Um, in any case, I hadn't known about commune until we were talking about this. Would you talk a little bit about, about commune and also the other things in your own life that you're doing outside of your teaching, outside of your writing and publication and scholarly work that may be part of doing some of the work that we're talking about. They're not, none of it's going to do all of the work, but some of the work to uh, try to figure out or, or push back against these systems that seem to be a greater democratization, but actually often reify the very systems that they're trying to subvert. So maybe start with commune. Commune, yeah. I mean, the reason you haven't heard of it is, is the first issue is just coming out. Oh. Um,
1: but you may still not have heard of it. <laughs> after that, it's not like that at all. So it's coming. It's it's back from the printer in some way, and I've had I haven't had a major role in it. It's been you know I've been kind of like a supporting editor or something like that, or contributing editor around it. So I don't I don't feel like I've had a, a kind of major. But I think the the impetus was a attempt to think about what it would mean to do a kind of popular magazine that was um, maybe to the left of something like the DSA or Jacobin, although, you know, not an antagonism to it, but to kind of um, put forward a lot of, you know, to add to that discussion, right? To add to the discussion of like, you know, how do we understand this moment in which we find ourselves in? anti-state marxist uh little c communist um and or anarchist um so that's you know hopefully it'll work um it's meant to be the the desire is to kind of get writing that's you know somewhat um not academic but more popular um to also um you know support street protest moments um in in some way and you know I'll try to encourage that to happen more so that's, you know, who knows? We'll see where that goes, see what happens around it. Um, like anything, it's, you know, the, the starting those things are really complicated. and There's a lot of discussion that is required. And so, I mean, I think like that, I mean, part of it is like that, you know, there's, num- there's numbers around the, the, the ease of production. I actually feel like they've been a big part of my life and that there are, there's been these moments where I think I've just been involved in various publication projects, kind of like you know, from 2000 forward, so I'm part of that kind of like large uptick in some way, um, as many people are, obvi- obviously, like there's a part of what, um, you know, used to be called seen as like kind of like maybe idiosyncratic in the 70s um, or as a deliberate um, thing that one did. One dropped out, as Gwendolyn Brooks did, out of, you know, the mainstream publishing establishment and went to, you know, a kind of all black publishing presses as she you know wanted to do to support that the development of that um now feels like it's just one of the things that writers do is like they publish a lot or they publish um not their own work but other people's in, in various ways and you know there's like so many venues and avenues around that and so there's a, there's a different series of questions that I think like we haven't worked through yet around what that means as writers like what do we do now that there's like this massive increase in production in some way how do we figure out what to read um because we can read only a small percentage of it what do we begin to say about it what are we missing when we (laughs) do that
0: and commune is going to be uh print
1: online both both Uh uh-huh so yeah the first issue comes out in print but it's also been online Mm -hmm. and i mean i mean one of the goals is is to like support younger writers um and you know work with them on developing a kind of you know style that's easy to read, you know, and stuff like that. Um, So people should
0: pitch to it. Mm -hmm. And um, in supporting younger writers, how are you trying to make sure you're not uh, also being limited to a certain set of younger writers who, you know, are in MFA programs Mm -hmm. or um, would know about commune because they're, uh, you know, a uh, fancy educational mm. institution told them about it, or you know, I mean, I, I, it seems like part of the project would be to try to avoid those same kinds of self-selecting, um, or gatekeeping, uh, influences and pressures. And I ask, uh, not so you can justify yourself, but, uh, but more like for people who also want to start publications or reading series mm-hmm. or? Yeah, I
1: don't even know the, I, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I mean, I keep having, um, you know, this discussion with Claire Grossman about, they work sometimes on this reading series called Canteel that, you know, really wants to present work by writers of color that are, um you know, not in the MFA necessarily. I mean, I'm not against MFA writers, but, you know, like they wanted to kind of have like a larger um, inclusion and how hard that's been to find those writers finally, which is again, that question of like, why, why have we accepted literary production as being something that a certain highly educated demographic does and not otherwise? And I mean, I don't I don't even know how to get out of it. Finally, it's just like feels like it's just really hard to even find those people um, at moments. And um, there's not enough of them despite the massive increase in some way. And I don't know. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in thinking about the ways in which I can be more thoughtful uh, and critical about the Ways that commonplace functions, you know, the Uh way that the way that we're selecting guests, the structures that we're relying on that are invisible to us, um, but are but are influencing us. And you know, I haven't I I I haven't gotten to any conclusions, but I'm interested in in thinking about that. I also wanted to ask you, in terms of uh, as you said, like supporting street protests. How do you support them uh, other than reporting that they happened? Um, Or is that what you mean?
1: That's what I mean, or just kind of like, you know, like, they're often not a part of conventional, you know, quote, unquote, mainstream media, Like they often just don't show up in it. And so, um, you know, trying to be like, this happened here, isn't that interesting? Look what they did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, just feels like something that, you know, kind of needs to happen, or like, here's something interesting that these people did. And yeah. Um, it's important and it matters
0: and making space for that um, in a way as if it were a publication
1: uh-huh.
0: like oh you know this happened here and this happened here and or or if as if it were a play or if it's you know yeah um, I think that's really interesting and and commune is there It's you Joshua Clover and Who's the third person? Jasper Burns. Jasper Burns. But there's
1: there's two things. There's commune editions with this Joshua Jasper and me, and then there's commune the magazine, which is has Jaspers on it and I'm on it. Jasper's really doing a lot of work on it, and Joshua and I are kind of on it too. But it's also larger. Okay. And they're kind of independent of each other, even though they have this confusing name overlap.
0: <laughs> was it in a statement in commune that was uh, that there are three riot theory and pop? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's part of um Commune the magazine. No,
1: that's part of Commune editions, editions with Jasper, Joshua and me writing
0: together, which we sometimes do. Okay. So do you my mind- so it was a very interesting way of thinking about how to understand this contemporary moment, and that if you if you only have one of those three or if you're only looking at one of those three things, you have certain problems if you look at two of them you're gonna uh have a very skewed perception, but three of these triangulated is gonna is gonna do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I'm doing a terrible job. Yeah, I'm going to do a terrible job too. I actually blame this
1: this this idea on Joshua Clover. It's really his idea right. in some way. Um, although it was really interesting to kind of go in and try to think it through in some form with him. Um, I mean, I think the idea is that um, for a long time – Poetry has been this form that's very traditional that references tradition a lot, and I mean that's what's happening in that poem that I started with, right It was referencing Sappho, and that's what poets do. they reference um Homer and they reference Sappho and Shakespeare and some other people too <laughs> and um there's a very much a sense that it's a genre that's written in a tradition and that we're now in a moment that's not that, which is. Has like, and I mean, you feel that sometimes in like when you get together with your other um, people that teach creative writing, and they're like, the kids today, they don't read any of the old stuff. Um, There is a sense of like kind of like a kind of interesting sense that poetry at this moment is being thought of less as a genre for the ages or for the that's in dialogue with a you know 200, 2000 year tradition, whatever you, however, you want to define that but as one that's kind of in dialogue with like these contemporary moments and that there's certain reasons why it happens, um, you know, which have to do with kind of like, you know, poetry's relationship to kind of capitalism, which is very uneven. Um, You know, it kind of makes it very interested in, you know, the kind of like the, the mass possibility of popular music, which seems to have been replaced the kind of you know, has reference, for instance, like you now would, you know, put a Beyonce line in your poem in some form. And like, um, what does that tell us about what we're thinking about poetry? It's almost like the, um, I mean, I kind of think of it, of it almost as if the, it's become a genre of the, of what used to be called the occasional poem um, that you would write on the occasion of something <laughs> um, and that was seen as a kind of at the time as a very kind of throwaway can you know um, very contemporary poem that wouldn't have a life cycle of more than the o- whatever the occasion was and um, that there's more and more writing that seems to be functioning like that um, which is probably something about how the genres changing or
0: mm-hmm. and that feels very much in our lifetimes to me you know, that, that I feel that I'm sort of, that I came up, uh, whatever that means, right at the moment where the goal in writing poetry, at least among a certain community, was no longer to write something that was timeless, but to write something that was timely. Yeah, doesn't mean that, you know, Frank O'Hara hadn't been interested in that before. It doesn't mean, you know, but, mm-hmm. but, but that um, the ways of talking about it Um, had had were changing I remember being told you know you should try to the the big thing is to write something that's going to outlive you Mm -hmm. and then feeling like you know, I I remember making some impassioned speech in some panel or whatever uh, about my interest in timely poetry rather than timeless poetry. And I, and saying like, what do you want? You want your poems to outlive you like plastic, you know, like toxic waste, you know? Um, And I'm sort of making fun of myself, although it is something that I, that I think was like that shift felt very uh, important to me. Mm -hmm. I was thinking too about Ariel Greenberg and I, when Obama was elected, started this project called Starting Today, which I think fits into several different things we've talked about. So it started as a blog and we asked um, 99 poets to write um, a poem on a particular day of oh, one of Obama's yeah, first yeah. 100 days in office. And the idea was to, you know, to really write these like state of the nation mm-hmm. poems. And then I had t shirts made, which I still have almost all of them because <laughs> you, like, because I, I was an idiot. Um, but they said occasional poet. Uh-huh. And then underneath it was like, you know, starting today. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, it was like this idea that, that, looking back on that project i can see the ways in which it was very connected to what you're talking about like this desire to have poetry function politically and 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 to and to rethink this admonition against occasional poetry that i had mm-hmm. sort of come up with and to celebrate not just the occasional poem but the ways in which um all poems, to some extent, can be read as occasional poems. And how does that change the reading of them? How is that more and less appropriate to some of them? And, you know, you know, to to sort of plant my flag of some sorts uh, about poetry, like I was trying to ask other poets and my students, like, what do you want your poems to do? Mm-hmm. Um and all of these kinds of questions and I don't, I, I don't know if we're still in that moment or if we're entering into a little bit of a, another moment or we're more critical of that kind of energy which felt very revolutionary but you know now we have Trump and so whatever we thought we were doing seems to have not succeeded. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean as you were talking, the thing that was struck me that I was I was kind of thinking like how much of that is the result of the internet because like it's not just that project, but early on when the internet suddenly became, everyone became aware that you could publish stuff on the internet and people would read it in some form. I can't remember those big projects that were like the one after Hurricane Katrina. Like there were these large ones that would like Poets Against the War is one of the first ones that kind of like came out in which they were like. You know, like it ends up with like 30,000 poems against the war like this and these large projects in which people were writing and submitting occasional poems and that were meant to be inclusive, meant to basically take any work that was happened to come that way that people that ran into it, um, which might be like the early kind of like canary indicators of a, of that kind of shift and what how the how the genre circulates or how and you know which has an impact on how we write it or what we think when we're writing which is kind of I don't know what to do with that but it probably
0: like who, how will that continue is the kind of question which I don't really know. Well I mean I, I guess you write in your book and and uh, this seems like a really important thing that I've that I've heard many people uh, notice which is that You can't really understand the counterculture movements um, and the civil rights movements and the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s without also looking at the proliferation of small press Mm -hmm. publishing. And so I guess we will look back on this moment where the use of the internet um, and the means of of self-publication became more accessible. It's got to have some effect, but but I think that part of what your book is about is that it doesn't yet seem to and may never seem to lead to the kind of movements that were happening in the 60s. Maybe it is and we don't see it that way yet, um, or maybe it's not. Yeah, I
1: don't know. I mean, I kind of think it's not, Mm -hmm. Um, which doesn't mean it couldn't be in the near tomorrow, right? I mean, it could change. The thing that feels to me like the the way that it's not, and then maybe we can talk about it, maybe a way that it might be becoming is that it felt to me like the anti-globalization movement, which was a huge movement in, you know, around the turn of the century, like was not interested in literature and literature was not interested in it on both sides. And so like when globalization tended to show up in literature it either showed up as a localism, uh, like which there was a lot of at the time, or it showed up as the international kind of globalized novel that's written in English, um, which felt more supportive of that and the kind of like very much the very localized literature as in resistance to that. But neither one of them a part of the anti-globalization movement as it was kind of like in formation at that time. And there weren't like the... Obligatory poetry readings that are sometimes happen around that around that movement. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were occasionally. It just didn't feel the same way. On the other hand, I do feel like BLM had a really large impact on literary the content of literature. You know that a, a a ramification that we're continuing to kind of see. You know, reap the benefits of. Let's say, so that might be a kind of another moment. I just the thing that I can't tell is even if literature seems to have been very much interested in the black lives matter and is also a kind of like really kind of great place for kind of articulating the ways that black lives matter, which is kind of what art often does. or like one of the things that art can do, it hasn't been clear to me that BLM when it's on the street or in, you know, in its formation has been as interested in literature. Um, I don't know yet. I just kind of can't quite figure it out. Um, and there's something that was so decentralized deliberately and in a great way about that, around that movement that it never had the kind of like the cultural center that was developed in the way that that was happening in the 60s, the late 60s and kind of into the early 70s. Um, there wasn't like that manifesto that said, like, we need to write the literature of that moment, which was happening, you know, like the Young Lords would have this moment or like even the Black... Panther Party that was kind of like really, really hesitant around cultural nationalism and the black arts movement and had like a critique of it. I mean, they would still, you know, in their, you know, 10 point platform have a moment where they kind of talk about, you know, the importance of cultural self-determination. And I mean, that may develop still, you know, like there's there's everything is still in flux, in other words. But so who knows?
0: Do you think it's possible that part of why the Black Lives Matter movement um, has not necessarily been, uh, so, uh, directly aligned with literature or cultural production, cultural arts production, uh, might be this, a feeling that's actually, you know, very present in, in your book about the, the, the rethinking, um, the effectiveness of literature as a form of, of political resistance. And so, Not that the Black Lives Matter movement is anti-literature, but that to kind of too directly promote literature feels like uh, it would take away from putting your body in the street um, or other kinds of actions. That um, even though Audre Lorde was espousing, you know, the connection between literature and action, that. To some extent, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of reveals a, a contemporary distrust of uh, the connection between art and resistance or effective protest, and that it you and that there has in a, in, a, in an interesting way actually been a return to a, a more binary view of the mind body in a certain way like that you you know you have to you have to put your body not just your uh, imagination Mm -hmm. uh, on the line in a certain way
1: yeah maybe I mean I mean I think there's no getting around the fact that often the state and its various tentacles really like to push us into cultural production instead of into meaningful protest. Um, and that literature has a long tradition of being used that way. And that we need to be nervous around it, around that, or something like around putting too many eggs in that basket or something that it, that's too easily co-opted. I mean, that, that has the potential to kind of be part of it. I mean, part of me is also like, I'm wondering how much like, I both hate this analogy and yet I keep returning to it as a kind of extreme example, but in what way is literature becoming something like opera Um, in which no one's going to say that we need to have an opera, that opera is the place for us to locate our politics or our political speech. And yet in some ways literature is becoming similar to opera as an a form, or poetry in particular, a form of production that's very elite, that has an elite and aging readership, um, you know, is written by a very specific demographic at the same time. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a, I, it's a kind of that question around, you know, that, that NEA study that just came out and everyone was like, look, we've changed People are reading poetry again. It was like, have you read one poem a year? And it kind of, the number went up a little bit and it was like, it's because of the internet, which I think is true. It is because of the internet. It's really hard to not read one poem in a year um, if you're on any sort of social media because there's a lot of linking to that stuff and it kind of circulates through your feed kind of constantly. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the kind of production around it has changed, right? Or something like that. Or, you know, I don't quite know what to do with it.
0: What are you you working on now?
1: Not that much, (laughs) to be Mm -hmm. honest with you.
0: I'd actually love to just briefly hear more about not that much, because I think that's really important um, to be honest about that. Um, And I I think that people, I mean, you are an incredibly prolific writer, so it's also helpful to hear, like, why are you not writing that much right now? And uh, is that okay? How do you feel about that? (laughs) Uh, yeah. Um, I often have moments where I don't
1: write that much. (laughs) And I always have this moment where I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not going to be a poet anymore. And um, then I sometimes find myself again, writing something for some reason that I don't quite understand. In the midst of all this overproduction, the world only needs so much poetry. I feel like it's fine to just take some time off or try to rethink it or try to think about like writing something else or um it helps me to like move between different forms of writing anyway. Whenever I get like that I mean, I mean that might be part of the, like the the categorical thing like whenever I get somewhere like I'm a poet I get nervous or like, you know like whatever it is. I'm always trying to kind of like move away from it. Mhm.
0: Do you usually have multiple projects sort of simmering or do you look back and realize like oh I was working on this I didn't know I was or is it more like I'm going to I'm going to intentionally take some time away from poetry or some to to either to write prose or to write nothing?
1: Um, I often have multiple projects, with especially with, quote unquote, creative writing. I mean, there is some way in which it is, it does have something to do with my employment. Um, but I, I pretty much like if I don't want to do it, I just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really feel like there's a huge kind of like. Like, it doesn't feel like it helps to put pressure on it. There isn't any need to kind of do more of it or something. It almost feels to me like a kind of, like, residual habit that I sometimes fall into. And then I'm just like, all right, I'll just accept it. But I also feel like I really need to clear my head Hmm. often. Like, I kind of, like, need to kind of step back. And if I were to keep producing, um, that that would be bad. I'm not a big person on that, like, write a poem every day no matter what type of, methodology. just doesn't work for me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know it does for some people.
0: Other than not writing a poem every day, what helps you most clear your head? Because I think that's incredibly important. Weightlifting,
1: (laughs) you know, like that, (laughs) you know, like just like other other things. Um, I mean, I also I mean, yeah, hiking, (laughs) you know, like anything outdoors, Mm -hmm. Um, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's some way I mean, I think it's like the weird thing about writing is that it it does overlap with my employment in in ways that other things don't. But, you know, I spend a lot of time reading books about native plants, for instance, um, and looking at them as much as I can. And, you know, I just, I'm not a botanist or as a profession. So it's just kind of, it's my side obsession, right? Mm -hmm. Which people have endless amounts of them,
0: ideally. But people don't talk about them so much, which is interesting. And this is part of why I required or s- strongly invited my students to do these projects that required research, because I think that a lot of times beginning writers don't realize the extent to which writers like you have their obsessions, hobbies, you know, practices that s- may seem non literary um but that eventually are essential both to sustaining a literary practice and also then what the literature comes out of both right. like yeah. both clearing your mind allowing you to be a uh, an artist who can keep making things um but also then the art is re- deeply related to that it's almost like there's a a sense um at least among my students and it's a particular group that it's like they have their poems and then they have their lives uh, and they have to like protect the poems from their lives, which is very much not my sense of what it's like for me to be mm-hmm. a poet. Um, then anyway, okay. Tell us what you are a little bit working on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was trying to find, it. I'm not sure I can get it without the internet. You can go onto the internet and then, um, you can go off again. So I was just going to read this
1: recent piece that I had written um, that was published in Lana Turner. That might even cover some of the things we've been kind of talking about. Um, I don't think it has a title. It might have had a title as in Lana Turner, but it does not have one on this Word document. Those Octobers were so beautiful, so warm during the drought. I lounged around the backyard, tables full of food and wine, friends laughing, my son running around, chasing Anya, who was wearing a white dress, as she chased hummingbirds flitting in and out of various red bell-shaped flowers, their long stems gently swaying. I pretended at those moments that I didn't worry at all the time. It's okay. These words came out of my mouth, even though I didn't believe them. It's okay, these end times, so beautiful, so warm, the sun. Now it is all floods, that and fascism. How did things get so much worse and so quickly? It's not just that the ice caps continue to melt. Suddenly there is a perfectly fine haircut that is now called the fasci and articles about well-dressed Nazis in the media. It's like the dam right now. It has so much water that it gets pumped down the spillway, then the spillway breaks, and so the water gets dumped down the secondary spillway, then the town is evacuated. While watching the YouTube of the well-dressed Nazi do the Sig Heil, while watching the dark, muddy water spill out, while worrying the sheer salmon, friends get in my feed. They say, I am angry at everyone who didn't vote, which means they are angry at me. And I think, well, I'm angry too. I'm angry at every one of you who voted and upheld this total bullshit moment in which we now find ourselves. Look at what electoral politics has unleashed. Not that all is lost. Yet, there have been small moments to celebrate, and I've celebrated them as hard as I can. Someone punched that Sighel Nazi with a fasci and a Pepe pin and a purple shirt in the face. For once, the gods were on our side, and there was a camera there, which meant I got to watch him get punched over and over. The internet did have one of those wonderful moments of harmony, as everyone felt compelled to do their version of setting the punch to music. I watched the punch first to Celine Dion, and then to Bruce Springsteen, and then it's on. I watched at least 30 versions, and I'm here to tell you that the one I preferred was the one set to let it go. The first punch in the face on the word let, the second punch to the gut on the word go. Yet for each moment when it felt we might make it through, another moment suggested otherwise. I was not the only one who took it hard when the Patriots won. I mean the name, right? But it wasn't just the name that made it feel suddenly very important that the Patriots not win. That Nazi was tweeting about how he hoped they would win because they were the whitest team in the NFL. When Tom Brady threw that desperation pass in the fourth quarter and when Julian Edelman caught it, it felt as if the racists and the Nazis and fascists and also cheaters would keep on winning forever. It felt like the wrong sort of augury. All I know right now is that it feels as if it is some sort of end. If the floods don't get us, the fasci will. I mean, the hummingbirds will continue feeding and the rains will bring on some sort of green that is beyond all beauty this spring, so life will go on. But this is a time when the wolves are no longer ashamed and afraid to show their faces. Instead, they've got an Instagram account where they share their fasci's, their t-shirt designs, their Nordic tattoos, their gym-begotten muscles, too. Others keep bragging about how they are coming for us on 4chan. But it's not just creeps and kids on 4chan. Hey, I say one morning over breakfast, the president is tweeting about us. That's weird. Hey, I say another time, this guy in Africa just posted a photograph of his arsenal saying he is coming to get us. That's weird. Looking back from now, I should have known it, or at least something like it was coming. Some friends, after all, had started pickling and gone all third position in the last few years. So far, our best scrimmage was the one outside of the Milo event. We won, and we almost never win. Last time we showed up in Sacramento, it was mayhem, and at least one of us got knifed. A few weeks before, someone got shot at a Milo event. But this time we won, and I say we won even though I wasn't there and instead watched it on TV with my son there beside me as I waited for my boyfriend to come home so I could rush out to the inevitable dance party. It was like Greece, finally, Duncan said when I got there. The people who wanted to tear into the barricades tore into them and those who didn't stood back and cheered them on. When they played one of the many versions of Fuck the Police that are available to us in this time, we were briefly someone's nightmare consumed, seething together, more non-binary than binary, in love with each other and our shared hatred of fascism. But of course, even though we won, everyone had to tell us we were wrong to win like that, or we had not won because we gave him attention as if attention was a way of winning. That night, someone knocked a light over, We knew we didn't want what that light was there to expose. Gasoline trickled out of the light's generator and it caught on fire and it was a big hot fire. Some danced around the fire as a black smoke rose up. Our smoke, smoke that we might find each other in the near future, smoke to come down to the bonfire, smoke that we are going to be okay, but there is no telling yet if that is
0: true. Awesome. I I imagine that you're not so keen on giving advice, but- if you were going to give some advice or guidance to a younger poet or a, a someone who really wanted to write the poetic equivalent of setting the punch to music <laughs> and avoid writing a 747 poem <laughs> by which I'm referring to the kinds of poems that you know someone would take a 747 to Hawaii uh and then write a poem about how beautiful it is and go home but i mean it more uh metaphorically that that to write a kind of uh poetry of place or of protest which is really ultimately from a tourist's perspective because i feel that your your poems are very much coming from the setting the punch to music and very not uh 747 poems So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, because I know I have many students who are hoping to navigate the world of writing in a similar way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have. You're right. I don't know that I have an answer to it. I mean, the only thing that I would think about sometimes is um, one of the things that was interesting was to think about language poetry as a form of anti-Vietnam War poetry, which is one of the claims that Ron Silliman makes. And you can say, oh, that's absurd because there's so little anti-Vietnam content in it and compare it to someone like the work that Ginsburg was doing around the Vietnam War. But on the other hand, what was really interesting about that example or about even thinking about the ways that language poetry could have come out of an anti-Vietnam War moment was that it was refusing a kind of shamanic, declamatory poet as truth teller um, who is there to instruct? You know the 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 masses that don't know what to do. It stopped that in some way, which I think is one of the anxieties that I have about the kind of like more declamatory political poem. And sometimes in this moment, I keep being like, "Stop yelling at me!" Um, you know, try to think with me when I hear a lot of that work. It often feels like they're trying to tell me something that as if they've thought something through or as if I haven't thought about it or something like that. And that's when I get kind of resistant around it. So something about like, it helps me to even put that political question away. Like I, I, I would never sit down and say, I'm going to write now a political poem because I get stuck in the bad part of it.
0: Mm. That makes sense to me. I, I'm going to just end there. I'm going to say <laughs> thank you so much. No, and thank you. And, you know, it's just, it's been... A kind of uh intense and wild pleasure reading so many of your books at this in the same time because this came together so quickly that i feel like i'm in like a um, juliana spar montage almost <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no it's, it's to, it, <laughs> no it's it's fantastic and it's been really instructive um for me and i'm really i'm really grateful to you for your writing and for coming and talking to me thank you thank you All right. This has been episode 63 of Commonplace with Juliana Spar. This episode was produced by myself, Rachel Zucker, along with Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Becca Gregorio, and Doreen Wang. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman, and the Commonplace theme music was written and performed by Moses Zucker Gorin. Many thanks to Wesleyan University Press, University of Alabama Press, Harvard University Press, City Lights, and University of California Press for donating books to the Commonplace Book Club. Thank you to all the Commonplace patrons and to you, dear listener. Thank you for listening.